So my very first church plant was a college church. It was uh, uh, at, at Clemson University, and uh, to this day, like so almost 30 years later, the fruit that has been produced by that, you know, little effort on our part continues to reproduce. So we're really excited about tonight. Cheryl and I were just in our 20s. We were, you know, we were learning a lot of stuff ourselves, as John Ross and Emily uh, are, and yet uh, God used us to give to some folks that were younger. And uh, so we are super excited about what's about to happen downtown tonight. Uh, we, we've got kind of a long history, at least for me. This church is almost 20 years old. We'll be 20 in August. Uh, that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, I've never been. I've always been a church planner, so usually the church is never older than three years before we go plan another one. Um, but compared to other churches, this isn't that old. Like, we're, we're kind of like kind of like a 20-year-old. We're still figuring some stuff out. We're 20 years in. And, and so what we get to do here uh, February 1st, we're going to rally. If you're a partner, we're going to all get together, and we're going to celebrate what God's been doing in our, what, long history of 20 years. And uh, particularly last year, we want to celebrate what God's done in our lives last year and what God's done in the community last year, and then we'll We'll point forward. So put it on, on your calendar February the 1st. Um, we're going to have Sheely's in. So if you didn't want to come talk with me, Sheely's usually does the trick. Like, like come on, it, it, it'll be a good night. If you've been with us, uh, we've been in a series. We call it No Regerts. Um, and every Sunday, just in case somebody's their first Sunday in the series, I want to make sure you understand. Like, we knew we misspelled it. Like, like it was on purpose. You, you get it? Like, anyway, like, it's No Regerts. And it's, it's really a wisdom series. We've been handing out these no regrets tattoos, which I've seen all over the place. As a matter of fact, it turns out like all of our two-year-olds got tattooed last week, Sunday morning. <laughs> Forget, that was actually one of our elders here at the church that did that, and they all went home, and yes, I, yeah, anyway, that was an elder who did that, um, not one of our high school volunteers. Um, and then we have a high school student, he, he just signed with the school this week, I thought I'd show you the picture, he, high school students always come up with he made a sleeve out of it. I don't know. How, how many did you use, Jonah? Is that like 100 of them? I feel like I ought to charge a fee. He's got, he got a sleeve of no regrets on. Like, we, we've had a lot of fun with the series. Uh, we, we chose it because as you open up your Bible, there's five books right in the middle. They're dedicated to wisdom. One in particular, Proverbs, just this great gift to us uh, from God through Solomon on, on teaching us how to be wise. And so he, he writes it all out. There's 66 books, so there's obviously a whole lot more in the Bible than just those five, five books on wisdom. But sometimes we'll actually miss those books and won't talk about just the extremely practical, wise decisions. We've been using it as, as a guide. This book, if you want to pick it up, every time I hold it up, I'm like, this is not the Bible. All right? Like, he quotes the Bible a lot. But Andy Stanley wrote this book called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. It's really helpful to me a year ago. Our staff went through it, and so we've walked us through it. And in this book, he uh, unpacks five questions, and they're fairly simple. On your way out the door, we actually have a little laminated card that has the five questions. If you want to take it and stick it on your fridge or stick it in a place in your journal or in your planner, like so maybe you ask these questions before you make a big decision. That's the whole goal. The same, same reason Proverbs is written to help us make decisions that are wise is good for you quite honestly. So here we go. I'm going to review the, uh, review the first few. The first one is probably my favorite one. It's the integrity question. 
Am I being honest with myself? Really? I love the dot, 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 really, because if I bounce off that too quick, I, I, I will convince myself that I'm being honest. Anybody else in this room have a season in your life where you just didn't want to look at your banking online? Like, like you're like, let's wait till the end of the week. Like, maybe something will just change. Maybe there'll be a miracle and there'll be a bank error. Like, like you just don't want to see it, so you don't want to tell yourself the truth so that you could go eat out one more time or buy whatever you had on your mind. And then when you see it, like, you already knew what was going to happen, but now it happened and you didn't really want to regret it until later, so you, you just wait. And, and what he's teaching us and what Proverbs actually will teach us is, hey, man, why don't you be honest with yourself right up front, really? And then make the decision based on that honesty. The second one was the conscious question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? I'll give you a trivial one in my life that came up when I was reading this. And I know we have so many in our room that are bigger. But there'll be this thing that keeps bothering you. So So I eat out a fairly good amount with other guys. And generally, when I come to the table, I'm the oldest guy at the table. Occasionally, I'll be younger. And I always get a sweet tea. It's just my thing. I've started to notice all the younger guys drink water, right? They don't have near as many wrinkles as me. They're like, they drink water. And then, like, guys my age have started going, like, half and half on the sweet tea. Anybody, hey, y'all do this? They do the half and half. And I've been watching this for probably five years in rebellion. <laughs> and every time I sit down, there's, like, this tension, like, like, what do you think you like a spring chicken? Like, you can just do what you want to do. Like, yeah, actually, I like that sweet tea. My food tastes better. It doesn't taste right without it. So, so on New Year's, I, I don't do resolutions. I move to half and half. It's nasty as heck, but I'm doing it, right? Like, <laughs> this morning, literally, at Liz was thick early. She did me half and half like I told her when she wasn't looking. I, I sneaked a little bit more sugar in there. But, uh, like, like it, was, it was a decision to make based on this tension. Now, I've been watching this and watching this and watching this. And I imagine you got something similar. That's pretty trivial. Perhaps you got something larger. The maturity question, question number three. What is the wise thing to do? There's a simple proverb, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18. Plans succeed with good counsel. What's the wise thing to do? So similarly, with your bank account, when you ignore the truth and hope that it goes away, Oftentimes, when I don't want to know what wisdom is, I avoid wise people. So I, I would just go, man, when you ask the question, what's the wise thing to do? If you're flipping through your planner and you land on this, what's the wise thing to do? One of the, one of the questions would be, hey, uh, who's wise in my, in my radius? How would they answer this question? Like I had a father who was really wise, so I can actually say, what would my dad do? You may not have that, but you probably got somebody in that circle that would ask that question. And then actually on the card, uh, it, it sorts them differently. This is how we went through them. What story do I want to tell? And I, I actually like the title of this one the best, the legacy question. And last week we talked about having this picture on the wall of where you hope to be at the end. So like if you're a, a parent, that might be a picture with kids in it. Uh, it could, you could have that picture with the business that you're running. You could have that picture with all the friends that you hope to influence. I thought a good question to ask today, when, when we as believers at a church that is called Radius, where we say we're responsible for the people in our radius, would my neighbors miss me if I moved? Well, that's a story. Like That tells my story. If, if, there's, if there's nothing to miss when I left the neighborhood, that 
that says a lot about me, right? It says a lot about my family. It says about how I led it. So what story do I want to tell? And the final question, this will be our last Sunday in no regerts. We'll get back to spelling stuff right. Uh, next week, we'll start a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually going to call it the Red Letter Podcast, and we'll kind of work our way through passages of Scripture in Matthew for uh, weeks on end. But the relationship question, what does love require of me? Honestly, I've read them all, and I like them all. This is the hardest one. This is the one, oh, sometimes I don't want to see what my bank account says. This one requires so much more often. Uh, when, we, when we started Radius, um, we, there was a little church in town. If I remember right, they had 22 people, and uh, they wanted to um, allow their church to die and become this new church with us. So I walked in to meet these folks, and there was this young couple in their 20s, uh, their names were Chuck and Renee Spears. And uh, if you know Chuck or Renee, you can't miss them, right? Like that, you walk in the door, they are uh, full like of affection. I got way more hugging than I wanted. <laughs> and then uh, very quickly, Renee told me a whole lot more about them than I wanted to know, right? Like she was just open books. She, she put it in front of, of us, and we got to know them. And um, yesterday... Uh, we celebrated Renee's life because she passed in the last two weeks. She was 47. She, uh, man, when I got to see the pictures, because, you know, sometimes you know people, but you don't know people, and I got to see the pictures of her family, and evidently Renee was this great softball player at, uh, at uh, Lexington High School, and, and you're like, wow, that, that was just so fast. But if you know her story, if you know Renee, one, you would remember of the joy that she brought in the room. You know, sometimes we say stuff about this when people pass. And it might or might not be true. It just seems like a good time to say something nice about somebody. In Renee's case, undeniable. But about seven years ago, she had uh, this disease that had been latent in her body, really her whole life, passed down from her uh, father. And it began to take effect. And she began to lose um, all variety of function, right? And so we're at this funeral yesterday, and we're celebrating Renee's first 40 years. And uh, I could not help but focus in on Chuck in the last seven years. So for seven years, this disease has been taking Renee's life. Piece by piece, right? Piece by piece from being able to talk to being able to walk, just piece by piece all the way to the end, slow, difficult process. So on one hand, there's like this celebration and, and grieving of her life. On the other hand, I see this man walk in. If you know Chuck, you can't get around him without a hug. Uh, Literally, he has started to serve as one of the radius white no elders in the past five years. I have never heard him complain about the situation, ever. If you know him well and you need something, he writes you a check. And he doesn't, I mean, he has, you know, he's middle class. 
He's generous as the day is long. With all the stuff going on in his life, he's generous as you can imagine. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I was serving with him as a white Noel, I'm like, bro, we can't give it all away, like easy. Now, anytime somebody comes in here, he's giving his money away and the church's money away, like ease up. He's just, just a generous, generous dude. And being at the funeral, I, if you've been to Radius White Noel, it's a little smaller building, seats about 250. It was slammed. People to the to all the way standing up in the back. And, you know, a lot of them knew Renee, but a lot of them knew the last seven years. One of the ladies that was telling a story about Renee, her best friend, at the, at the end of her little speech, which she did a terrific job, pointed at Chuck. And she goes, you're a saint. And I, I've known Chuck for a long time. He may not have been a great man, but he is now. Because he did what love required. He stepped up. He did what love required. He's raising a teenage daughter. He's led her through this. He stayed with Renee from, from the very beginning all the way through and got her all the way to the place where she's whole again. What's love require of me? Maybe the best chapter in the Bible, there's, man, when you talk about love, <laughs> there's no chance for me to get into all the verses on love. We'd be here all, all day and night. There's a chapter in John, uh, in John, John chapter 13, that is, is a pretty cool love chapter. Jesus talks about love. He talks about it directly. Uh, if, if you don't know this chapter, John, take, take some time later and pick out John 13 and just read it. You can take one of those Bibles out from under your seat if you don't have one. Take it home. I always kid everybody, take a magnifying glass with you so you can read it. But it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrific chapter. The very first verse, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. So last day on earth. A little exaggerated. He's got a little more time, but last day on earth. He knows it. Most of us never know it. Right? It just comes. In Jesus' case, it's his last day on earth, uh, generally, right, before he dies. Uh, and guess what he does? He gets all his boys together, all 12 of them. And you, you know some of the stories because we talk about pieces of this chapter all the time. So he gets all, all his boys together. We call them the disciples. And... Um, there's 12 of them there, and he begins right out of the gate. You remember what he does? He washes their feet. Last day on earth. He washes the disciples' feet. <laughs> my boy Peter does exactly what I do. Like, like hey, washing my feet. And he got this conversation between Jesus and, and Peter, and then and Jesus emphasizes why he needs to wash his feet, and then, and then Peter's like, hey, wash, wash my whole body. Right? Like, yeah, Peter's always just talking. Sometimes you ought to just shut up, let it work out for a minute. In verse 14 says this, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. It's kind of interesting. Last day on earth, he's demonstrating for them what it looks like to walk this earth like him. I don't know if you've seen the uh, painting by Da Vinci. You probably have. It's the Last Supper picture, and you got all the guys and Jesus is in the middle. I mean, you know, some the guys all look like Da Vinci had them in his mind, but they're all leaning in talking, which I think is a beautiful part of the picture. They're leaning in talking to each other. 
um, as, as Jesus is teaching and washing their feet and doing all of this kind of stuff. You, you, when you imagine the Last Supper, when you imagine this last day together, this gathering, this moment where, where they're going to celebrate the Passover, but Jesus washes their feet and you kind of line up the four stories in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just fascinating how that day went down. Jesus just keeps demonstrating his love, right? Like, yeah, there's, there's all kind of varieties of songs where they say love is a verb. He's, he's demonstrating it. He's moving them. But the boys are the boys, right? Like me and you, whether you're a, a, a male or a female, like we, we, we do our stuff in those settings, and you can imagine. Like there's probably some cracks going on between the guys while Jesus is laying down the foundation of who we would be. And he's, he's clarifying his work on this earth. I still imagine Philip leaning over and saying, he must be God if he can wash your feet, right? Like, like this, there's all this dialogue going on, and the boys are making fun of each other while Jesus is like sharing his last words, and they, they're, they're just not getting it. So we skip down to verse 31. He dismisses Judas from the room and says something like, go do what you're planning. Judas leaves, and if you read a couple of the context, you actually get this, this idea that Satan is present at the table. Bartholomew, fool of Philip, they're making jokes, but Jesus knows what's going on in the room. Like this, this, his master plan's being put together, but Satan thinks his is. So there's all this, these, this movement in the room. Jesus says this in verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives his glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. I can imagine one of the disciples, like, here we go, here he goes again. You probably do that sometimes when I'm talking, like, here he goes again. That makes no sense. Glorify, glorify, Father, Son, like, that makes no sense. But I imagine as John records it after the fact, it's starting to make a lot of sense. Verse 33, dear children. The actual translation is little children. He's speaking of grown men, most of them wanting to die for his cause in the, in the sense of going to battle. And he gives them this very intimate statement, little children. I'll be with you only a little while longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. Talking about death? Talking about resurrection? Or this ascension that's about to come in about 43 days. In many ways, he's looking at these men, probably fairly young men, and he's saying, boys, it's about to get crazy. And they have no idea what's about to happen. And then verse 34. You've been in church a long time. You've probably heard this verse in the next. If you haven't, this will be brand new. And when you think about what does love require of you, this is, this is a terrific Passage to even memorize. Maria T. out of NLT. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So he gives them a new commandment. What kind of authority do you have to have to just say, I'm going to add a commandment? Right, like there's 600 plus of them in the Old Testament. 
And Jesus coming in, like these folks know those laws. Certainly, certainly the uh, Pharisees know them. And these disciples, they at least are exposed to most of them. They know all the laws. And Jesus is like, I'm going to add another one. A new commandment I give to you. He, he's saying that he has the authority. And in many ways, he's wiping out the commandments of the past with this, this more filled out commandment. You know what's interesting, the Ten Commandments, you can kind of work them. If you work them really hard, just the ten, you can find some loopholes. Anybody? Like, yeah, well, that's not really what it says. But when he says a new commandment that I give to you to love one another, all of a sudden he takes all the loopholes out. Like, ah, that, like we, we can still lie to ourselves in it, right, like we, like we do with the com- commandments, but he makes it actually harder. We'll give you this new commandment. It's really where the old commandments came from and what we meant by them. Me, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you this new commandment. I don't know if you remember this in Matthew chapter 22. Again, very famous verses that Jesus says. He's asked to sum up the law in one way or another. You remember what he says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting? Every time he sums up the law or tries to deal with the law, which we always feel is negative, he's super positive, and he used the most powerful word. He says love. But then I I always said that, and I said that so quick like I just did. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor yourself. I'm like, like the Ten Commandments were really hard, but that's impossible. How am I going to love God with all my heart, mind, and soul? I've already failed before I get started. How am I supposed to love my neighbor as much as I love myself? i got to love myself. It's hard to meet that standard. Jesus puts out the standard, and it's got, it takes all the loopholes out. It's like, there's no way. I'm doomed. There's no way I can do that. And he throws this word that our world seems to have a really hard time defining love on it. This sums up all that God wanted you to know. And in this moment, he says to the disciples, this is the new command. Now, I imagine the disciples are not processing. We're sitting here being serious 2,000 years later, right? But if Jesus was sitting at the table with some of y'all, because I know you, like, like you, somebody would be punching the dude next to him and say, I love you, man. You know what I'm saying? And some of y'all, if you knew I didn't like to hug a lot, you'd be hugging me in that meeting just to make fun and people be laughing around the table. And Jesus, like he's making this massive statement for who the church and his people would be. But, but we're real people. They were sorting it out there and we're sorting it out in this life. And uh, that's part of, part of why we're here together, because we're sorting it out together. He says, he gives them a new commandment. We're supposed to love one another, but did you see what the standard was? Just as I have loved you. So just to be clear, this is the Son of God making this statement. He created the universe, right? He knows what you're thinking right now. He's omniscient, right? He's, he's, he's all-powerful. He's in the room right now. Now, now, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells those of us who believe, but he's in the room. He's omnipresent. And I could go on, right? He's, he's that God. And yet, instead of leveraging his greatness and his authority, what does he leverage? His love. He's got these 
11 now at this point in the story because Judas has left. These 11 guys, he's going to pass his mission on to, and he's leveraging his love for them and the way he's loved others for their future. This is how I want you. I want you to love one another like I loved you. That's interesting. Most of us, and certainly I at times, want to move to my experience or my authority because I've done it or because I've read about it or somebody I know or somebody I'm connected to. That's how I want to move people. Jesus moved the people who are most important to the future of his message by love. Love each other just as I have loved you. Now, again, in real time, you think they're tracking? I don't know. You know, maybe one of the boys is remembering a moment where Jesus showed him a lot of grace. Maybe. Maybe one of them is remembering a time where Jesus is really patient. Or maybe one of them is remembering a moment where Jesus t- just told him the truth on a button. And it, like, it, he didn't love it at the moment, but it was clear that Jesus loved maybe, maybe they were remembering those moments, but if they're more like us, they're probably going to remember that statement later as they're living it out and going, boy, he loved us. Young parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about? We get some respect now? Yeah, I know, I know. Like, you didn't know what we did as parents, but now you got kids. You're like, dang, mama loved me. She wiped my tail all those years like I am now. I haven't slept in a month. My mother did that on my behalf. I hope you sent her a thank you note. Right? Like, like you, you don't know till you know, right? So disciples are taking this in, and certainly they've seen Jesus' love, just like kids know their parents love them, but you don't know how it was demonstrated oftentimes until you have to demonstrate it. So the disciples, I'm sure this made sense later, they have no idea in this moment how Jesus is about to demonstrate it. I pulled it from the King King James just for fun, John chapter 13, 38. This is at the end of the same chapter. Jesus and Peter are having a dialogue, and Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? I hadn't read verily, verily in so long. It's so good to read it. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. You see why I don't use the King James on stage? (laughs) That's hard to read right there. What's he doing? He's telling Peter that he's going to deny him tonight. Man, he's going to be dead by tomorrow night. This is going to happen before the rooster crows in the morning, which is what most translations. I thought just for the Gamecock fans, you ought to know you're in the Bible at some point. Like, as we read the King James, I hate to tell you, it was in the negative. It makes you feel bad. I mean, <laughs> Peter felt bad when he heard it. Anyway, I feel the same way this, last, last, this year. I felt terrible about it this year, too. But this, this chapter, there's this flow, and Jesus is trying to introduce them how to demonstrate love, and he's literally about ultimately demonstrate love. What does Romans 5, 8 say? I'll read that in NLV. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So John 13, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what love is going to require of him. And he's going to demonstrate. He's going to do something. He's going to go all the way to the cross because he loves us. And if you're sitting there going, man, I I have screwed up too much. Did you see what the verse just said? It said, while we were still sinners, you're qualified. It's hard to get unqualified for that one. Like he loves you. He died on the cross for you. Some of you like living in sin, quote, right now, and you know it. I don't even have to explain it to you. It says he died for you. It ought to 
cause change, right? But it also ought to create great joy because you're loved. So I imagine as John's writing the book of John after the fact, right, he's going back and he's writing about this time when they're around the table that uh, he's reflecting on this and it's like it's making more sense every time he thinks it through and he's writing it down. And he, he's continually thinking about how love was demonstrated and, and it was demonstrated all the way to the death. If you know the stories of the apostles, all but John, who wrote this book, died for the sake of the gospel. They wanted other people to hear. John somehow escaped death. I mean, he was boiled in a pot. I don't know. It might have been better to go. But they all suffered for the sake of the cross. They demonstrated their love. As I was reading this, what does love require of me? I, I kind of like started creating these circles for me. Like, so, so God's first for me, like the very middle, and I hope that he is for you. How, what does love require of me if I'm going to follow God? Well, he, he, he tells me directly in this passage. It means that I love like he did. What, is it, what does love require of me? And then my next spot is, is Cheryl, my wife, if you don't know Cheryl. What does it require of me in my marriage? Next for me would be the kids. Oh, and interesting, my parents used to be in that spot. They used to be after Jesus, my parents were next. But now Cheryl and my kids and even my, my uh, son-in-law and daughter-in-law have moved into these new spots where, where my love, they're the next circle out. And I got to ask, what does love require of me for them? And my parents kind of slide in out of there, but they're, they're still there, right? And then the last spot that I thought was pretty important was my siblings, which I'm not as close to my siblings, but I love them. We get, we're, we're blood connected. They need something, I'm going to come through for them. And, and so what happened really quick in the early church when they're trying to live this out, they started calling each other what? Brothers and sisters. They were blood related. Christ's blood related. So we, we, the body of Christ, we call each other brothers and sisters because, because we love each other like that. And I don't know if, you, if you've known Jesus for a long time, you probably have some friends in Christ that you know and love maybe better than your own flesh and blood because of the depth of the spiritual relationship. So the writer says in the NLT, your love for one another will prove to the world that, you're my, that you are my disciples. NIV reads like this, everyone will know that you're my disciples by your love. So evidently, the fish sign on the back of my car doesn't tell everybody I love Jesus, right? <laughs> T-shirt doesn't do it. I love the new thing where the football players put the cross right here. With, with the, the, I, I love that. I think it's cool, but evidently, that's not how God designed for the world to know that we're his disciples. Turns out that living generously is not how God designed for the world to know that we're his disciples. It's one of the things we love doing here at Radius. We talk about it. We celebrate at the end of the year with Give Hope. Like, but it turns out that maybe that buys us some trust in the world. Evidently, what they're looking at, the world, is you and me and how we relate. So they know that we're his disciples because in 1 John it says that he is love by how we love one another. They're watching. And all their questions come 
when we don't live like we know him, and we don't know, love well. I had Jeremy, if you haven't met Jeremy, uh, Jeremy's around here somewhere. Jeremy Simmons leads our groups here. I said, man, send me your best story from small groups. Well, it turns out he sent me like 40. <laughs> so evidently you guys are doing good work. I had to actually eliminate a bunch of them just because I can't read them all up here, Jeremy. But he's like, I ain't send you one. There's too many good stories. And praise God. Super frustrated when we started Radius because people didn't know their neighbors. That's why we named it Radius. When we would get together on uh, Sunday nights once a month when we first started, there'd be 20 to 50 of us, and we'd share stories. We'd share stories about knowing neighbors. We got some funny ones from the early days. We'd share stories about loving God, how we interacted with God. And then we'd share stories about loving one another. They were the most awkward ones. Like, you're talking about what we're doing right here. It's just weird. How can you brag about that? Well, evidently, like, that's what we're supposed to stand out for. Here's a couple about you. All anonymous, obviously, in the way I need to read these. Group members anonymously replacing other members' water heaters. Plural. Evidently, we got a water heater problem here. <laughs> members providing respite care for foster parents in their group, countless meals prepared for other members during sickness and crisis, groups rallying around a single member, member's conviction or cause like a lost neighbor needing help in a crisis or a local need, groups providing a safe environment for folks who have been, to be brutally honest about themselves, groups providing the first line of pastoral care when there's an extreme tragedy, groups gently confronting a member in sin. How about that? Does that feel like love? I've been parenting a long time. Telling the truth ain't love. I don't know what is. There's a tone about it, though, isn't there? Isn't it interesting when the Bible talks about telling the truth, it always starts with love. Truth comes out of love. Love doesn't come out of truth. The church for years acts like love comes out of truth. How bogus could that be? It starts by being in love, so you have to tell the truth, which gets your tone right. When your tone's wrong, it often says you're not in love. Generally, when my tone's wrong, I'm in love with myself. Groups gently confronting members and sin. Members uh, uh, keep coming to a group and giving community a chance, even when the connection isn't automatic or smooth. Evidently, when we put groups together, we don't, we had, we don't have the software for eHarmony yet. We don't always get it right. Like, like there's, there's somebody in there who you think's weird and they think you're weird, right? Like, and you so see, you got to figure that out. And as believers, we figure it out. And sometimes you move groups later. That's all right. Ain't nobody's feelings hurt. I don't think, but the, the idea is that, hey, we, we're generous to one another, even when we're, our personalities are significantly different. Members celebrating births and mourning deaths together, members meeting substantial financial needs, and others in group. That's what we're supposed to be known for, our love for one another. As a matter of fact, it's how they know that we're connected to him. I had to make a hard decision this week, uh, along with others. It was, a, it was a group decision. And so we went through the, you know, the process. Five questions. You can grab one of these on the way out of the door if you want. The first four really kind of just, just check, 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 check. The first four just kind of rolled through. And I really felt good about number five. Really did. I, I felt like we did what love required of us created some patience, what I thought was patience. 
And uh, then all of a sudden, it required more. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? So the Apostle Paul writes it out in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. You probably heard it at a wedding. He, he, he kind of writes out what love requires. I'll read you a couple verses. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own, in its own way. It's not irritable, for goodness sakes. And it keeps no record of being wronged. I don't know there's more convicting verses in the Bible for me, personally. So like, we went through the four, and the fifth one I felt okay about because I felt like there was patience with the decision. I got up one that morning this week. I went to the dentist and uh, just to you know, give you context for my day, and she said my teeth are remarkable. So you're welcome. Like, like I, I, I said, did you see the heart attack? I hadn't had a cavity yet. I'm 55, right? I said, did you see the heart attack like on there? Like, so the rest of this isn't remarkable, but I'm glad my teeth work. And you kind of go through the day. That's kind of how the day goes, right? Like, and you think you kind of got it all together, and then about 10.30, I got a text about this decision that we made. And all of a sudden, out of just a normal day, I, I started arguing for myself. What I thought love required had been completed, so I immediately kind of went into the defensive. You ever get something like, man, I wish they had text me that at 1039. I'm not going to be able to sleep because I'm angry. So I go down, angry. You know what? I, I, I know what I need to do. I need to interact with God because he is love. And if I spend time with him, he's going to work this out. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what love requires. But instead, I thought I'd get on the computer and work. So I worked, trying to get myself tired so I can go to sleep so I don't have to deal with it because I don't want to meet the requirements. As a matter of fact, within minutes, this verse was, within minutes, I had a list in my pockets. Anybody else? Like, you feel a little offended or like you've been attacked and immediately this list pops in your mind about somebody else and you, you want to deliver it so bad. I, th I thought I'd met all the criteria of being wise, walked all the way through and it says, what does love require me? And now it's on me. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't sleep. I'm so out of love that I can't sleep. There's nothing in me that want to be any more patient. I've already been patient. <laughs> that probably kind of works against the definition there. Kind. I wanted to be proud of myself. I certainly want to be rude. I wanted my own way. I was already irritable. And I got a list. So I got up the next morning after finally getting to sleep and um, tried to have some time with the Lord. It's really hard to interact with the God of love who says he is love and not be held to a a standard. And so I, I tried to get through it and, and, and do my thing, and, I, and there was no way to get around that he required more. And when you interact with him, it, it, was, it was a good morning. It was, it was a good morning where he just like held up what, who he is, and I had to rest in. I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, within three hours, the list came back out. So like it didn't just get solved with a quiet time. As a matter of fact, it took two or three days to get it out of my head. I don't know if I'm a fighter or what, but like, like I, I just wanted to go handle it. Let's get this over with. I'd feel better if we fight it out. Instead of, I'd much rather do that than put myself before the God of love 
and have him evaluate me. It was a good, hard week. What does love require of you? We'll quit with this. I don't know if you know the context, but John chapter 13 aligns with verses in all the other Gospels. And they're the verses about the Last Supper. Right? This is the Last Supper. It's a Passover meal. In the course of all this conversation, Jesus has washed feet. He's dismissed Judas. There's uh, this interaction with Peter that's amazing. In the course of all that, if you read Matthew 22, he's actually passing the bread and juice for the first time. What we do every Sunday. I'll read you the verses. Uh, This is Luke 22, I'm sorry. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine and said, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So when he said... Love one another as I've loved you. Like in the same conversation, literally at the same time around the table, he's demonstrating for them by a symbol what he's about to do. And he said to us 2,000 years later, do this in remembrance of me. You know what it reminds us of? How much he loves us and how much that love demands from us. So as you come take that juice and bread today make sure you work through your mind this very hard question what does love require of us and if there's something where you want to go with him like I had to this week and I, I know they may not know because my words are right but my heart's wrong make it right it might be as close as your spouse it might be as far as an enemy what does love require of you based on that demonstrated love of Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for the wisdom in the word. We're blown away by your standard of love, and it's really hard for us to get our head around it. certainly hard for us to live up to your demonstration of love, but we want to. So where we need to die to ourselves... Help us, Lord, even now as we sit in our seats as a family and wrestle with that question, meet us, Holy Spirit. As we come up and take bread and juice, we want to celebrate your love, and we also want to examine our own hearts and ask questions about our love. We love you for how you guide us. Listen to us as we worship. Amen.